I'm Ben Klunt. And I'm Stephen Brown. In 2019, we started this podcast as an accountability tool for our health and our business goals. Through our discussions, interviews, and sharing of our successes and difficulties, we've learned we have a passion for leadership. In 2020, we're striving to grow our own leadership abilities by focusing on learning from great leaders in business and life, and continue to share our successes and struggles on this journey. We'll continue to have raw and candid conversations while sharing our own insights and experiences with our goal being to grow as leaders and as people. You're You're listening listening to Ordinary to Extraordinary. For tuning in, everybody, again to Ordinary to Extraordinary. Ben and I are here with Tom Simpson, and Ben's going to give you a little intro on Tom. Um, this is weird when we're doing intros and we can see each other, but we're not actually with each other. I kind of like it. Yeah, this whole Zoom thing. <laughs> I, I kind of like Tom's chair. I'm a, I'm a fan of red leather. So, I mean, that sounds really weird, actually. I should watch what I say there. But the chair <laughs> looks really The guy good. who just moved into a house with mirrors on the ceiling. <laughs> It's been a couple of years now. The mirrors are gone. We, they weren't there. But there is an indoor hot tub room, too, that I didn't tell you about. Okay. An indoor-outdoor carpet. It's oh. pretty special in the house. I don't need to know any more details. <laughs> Probably best you don't. But, okay, so I'll do the introduction of Tom, and then Tom will let you jump into a little bit about your background okay. uh, on top of what I share. But, so... Uh, I was thinking about Tom and how I was going to introduce Tom and Tom's the type of guy that kind of just pisses you off a little bit too. And I mean that in a loving way. It's like you're the epitome of what most men want to be. I was thinking like he's run five Ironmans. He's physically in good shape. He's got a cool little red Alfa Romeo. You're a private pilot. I read the, you had an exit from a company that you co-founded. You're married to a beautiful woman. You got a lake house. You got good kids. And now you got a grandson. It's like, geez, man. You're, en- you're making me envious here. Wow, I want to meet this guy too. Um, <laughs> well, I, I guess all of that is true with the exception my Alfa Romeo is white, not red. Is it white? Oh. White. You know, I think I got the red off of uh, an article I read with the spokesman with the red Corvette comment. You know, uh, I once had a red alpha the one i have now is white so that article at the time was probably <laughs> actually correct okay 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 i think i've seen you cruising around in one of them maybe it was the red one i saw back how long ago did you get the white one? Oh, the red one was probably before you were born ben okay so then it was not the red one no, <laughs> no. Alpha it's, it's, it's not the red one so much speed well do you want me to comment so much on speed. that Oh, yeah. Am I supposed to react to that introduction? Absolutely. Okay, well, see, my, my view is, frankly, all those things really sound interesting and nice, but I don't really focus on them. Um, I feel like I have been lucky in life. Lucky. Not necessarily bright or any of those sort of things, but lucky. But my view or my definition of luck is the intersection of hard work and opportunity. 
And I kind of provide a visual for that. And the visual for opportunity is a ball machine uh, that is just spitting out tennis balls or, or baseballs. And so I've always tried to put myself in front of opportunity. Um, I'm a little ADD, and so I don't sit on a couch well anyway, but I'm always out trying to new, do new and different things, uh, participate in new activities, meet new people. So really, over my life, I put myself in front of a lot of opportunities or a lot of ball machines. But then, once you do that, you just can't stand there idly by and get pummeled by the balls. What you actually need to do is swing. And, you know, I'm not, despite the fact that I've done a handful of Ironmans, I'm not really a gifted athlete, but I do work hard. And so when I get in front of these opportunities, I just keep swinging and swinging and swinging. And even if you're not a good batter, you are likely to hit a couple of home runs. So when I look back upon my background and the things that you highlighted, it's really because I've been lucky. I've been in front of opportunity, mm -hmm. put myself in front of opportunity, and then worked hard when I got there. I like it. I like it. I always say it's like luck is where opportunity and preparedness meet. So yeah. it's kind of the, very similar, you know, yeah. but so let's start. Where are you at now? What are you doing now? And then we'll kind of work backwards. How about that? Well, right now, work, I'm talking work by yeah. the two of you uh, <laughs> <laughs> in, in a red leather chair. We've established that. Uh, yeah. Other than that, I mean, somewhat quarantined in my house. But, you know, the, the things I'm really focusing on right now uh, in my role as president of Ignite Northwest and as uh, president of the Spokane Angel Alliance, uh, I'm really focused on, um, you know, uh, funding, enlightening, and mentoring explosively growing companies in our region. And uh, I'm really passionate. I mean, I, I grew up in Spokane. I'm passionate about entrepreneurs. I'm passionate about Spokane. Uh, so I believe the activities and what I'm focused on is not only good for the entrepreneurs, but it's good for our region. I, I have the strong belief that, uh, you know, Spokane is really well positioned uh, to absorb the spillover, so to speak, from labor in real estate constrained cities like Seattle and the Bay Area. So my efforts are not only, you know, helping explosively growing companies and entrepreneurs and startups, but also, you know, uh, 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 as a side benefit, uh, helping grow our community. Yeah, I love that. I like it. One of the things that I just love about this community, and you answered one of the questions I had for later on, was what do you see in Spokane's future? But um, this, like, we, we walk around downtown all the time, Ben and I. We'll come to Indaba for a coffee. We see you in and out of there. We see other people in and out of there. The beautiful thing about Spokane is it has that big city feel, but it's also got the small town feel because we can run into you or anybody else that's a business leader, community leader at any given time. And I find that in Spokane, you're more likely to get time from those people. Mentorship, you talked about enlightenment. And obviously, funding's a big part, and that's where you come in. And it's just one of the beautiful things about Spokane, right? And I'm not a native of Spokane. I found my way here by accident. <laughs> you know, I completely agree with you. Uh, I've found that the most leaders in Spokane uh, are very willing to help a young person or a startup company or someone that is just relocated here and trying to get connected. You know, as long as you're respectful uh, with their time, 
And when you reach out to them, you have a, a real uh, concise reason why you want to meet. Um, and I, I, I've, I've, uh, I see that all the time. I'm, I'm often uh, trying to uh, introduce young people or, or people that have moved here or new entrepreneurs to others in the community. And I might facilitate that. And you know, generally, everybody responds positively and says, yep, I, I'm happy to meet them. Mm -hmm. I, I can give them a half hour of my time. Uh, so I completely agree with you, Stephen. And yeah, we're a helpers community. You've yep. passed that on to uh, Connor as well. So I serve on the Spokane Young Professionals board with Connor. Uh -huh. I'm on my way out and he's just new and it's been fun getting to know Connor a lot better as well. Yeah, it's, it is. Connor's my son and uh, it, it is kind of striking how the uh, apple doesn't really fall far from the tree. Uh, <laughs> I'm somewhat uh, shocked by some of the similar uh, uh, personality traits that we have. Yep. That's cool. That's cool. That's got to be a blessing as a parent, though. To hopefully, I mean, hopefully the good ones, at least, right? The good yeah. personality traits that you pass through. So see those come through in your kid. Well, you should be very aware of that. I remember when I first met you when I was doing work with uh, uh, your, your parents' firm, and you were there. Uh, and I was so uh -oh. struck by the similarities <laughs> between you and your dad that I think I, nick I nicknamed you Mini-Me whenever I came by the office. Oh, God. You should see when we're in the office together. I walk through their office and people are like, Darren, oh wait, God, you have the same footstep even as your dad. Like that's weird. Yeah. And those old hardwood floors. But and well, this is a funny so I'm gonna actually start off with a question that goes back away. And it has to do with uh, a company that my parents were a part of on the branding side, which I did not know that you were a part of, and that's worldwide packets and packet engines back yeah. in the day. And I was like, Oh man. And I was telling Stevens, like, that company to me would probably be a really fun company to have been a part of back in the day. I mean, yep. early 90s, right? Dealing in uh, it internet was, it was and bringing probably, I, it was, it was uh, I think Packet Engines was started in the mid-90s. Um, I got okay. to know Bernard Danes, the founder of the company, right around 1996. Oh, okay. And he would have been an interesting one to interview if he's obviously he still around. But, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Talk about it. His son, Stephen Danes, is one I've talked having on the podcast and a friend of mine, uh -huh. just to hear some of the stories about that back in the day. They're a pretty private family for the most part. But anything interesting during that time or things that you learned while working on that? I mean, that was a pretty big exit. I think it was yeah, 200 I, I and something million. Well, I mean, uh, uh, Bernard Danes was just a, 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 uh, a gifted engineer and visionary. Uh, and he was someone who just had big, hairy, audacious goals. Um, you know, I, I'm a big believer when uh, someone starts a company, um, you, you really ought to be thinking of how you can improve whatever is already on the market by 10x. And that was, that was, kind of, that was also in a book by uh, um, uh, oh, the founder of PayPal. He wrote a book called Zero to One. And in it, he talks about everything needs to be 10x better. Well, Bernard that thought that way, um, and he just had, you know, his vision was take over the world, uh, and he was highly successful, and it was really one of my very first venture investments, and Bernard was kind of kind enough to take me under his arm and, and put me on the board of Packet Engines, and so it was uh, right then, frankly, I was more of an observer than a real contributor, but um, it was, it was uh, very uh, enlightening to see how that company grew and then sold. And then after that, Bernard went out and started another one, Worldwide Packets, which I was also an investor in and board member of. And um, you know, a lot of people that we recruited 
um, four worldwide packets um, are still here in Spokane. People that we recruited mm -hmm. from outside the area. And I always kind of look at that as a real evidence that um, um, we have a very attractive place to live and offer a, uh, um, a, a, a better balance of life for people who might be interested in getting out of the Bay Area or Seattle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you were, were you with, uh, was Dane Bosworth that you were with? No, that, at the time I, I um, uh, before I came back to Spokane, I worked for an investment banking firm in Seattle, Dane Bosworth. And that's really where I got my, my training in, you know, corporate finance, uh, capital formation, initial public offerings, mergers and acquisitions. I did that for about 10 years in Seattle. And I was mentored by uh, a, a fabulous individual who had previously been at uh, Goldman Sachs. And it was a great time to be in Seattle uh, because Seattle was up and coming as a community. The capital markets were effervescent. So I, I gained a lot of great introductions, learned a lot of skills, but always wanted to come back to Spokane. And then came back in the mid nineties and, um, Kind of started off putting together a family of venture capital funds and that's where i met bernard yeah cool very cool how fun northwest venture associates is that where that came from? northwest venture associates was the uh, uh i've gotten much better at naming things since then um <laughs> but uh that was the name of the, my venture fund <laughs> so um from that obviously i'm sure some great companies were born of that do you want to talk about where that led you to well, uh, yeah, I would say um, um, there's good and bad in the story, um, successes and failures in the story. When I came back to Spokane to kind of um, um, put together this family of venture funds, I actually did a lot of research and uh, came to the conclusion that the state of Washington was importing most of its venture capital. At the time, there were only four venture funds in the state of Washington, all in Seattle. And most of the companies that were securing capital were bringing in that capital from California or Boston or other places. So I came up with the conclusion or the hypothesis that there was a need for uh, more uh, venture capital funds resident in the state of Washington. Well, my, my premise turned out to be very, very correct because the next couple of years, um, I, and I formed that fund in 1996, um, almost everything I invested in turned to gold. Now the markets were good, they were hot, and my first fund was a $6 million fund, my second fund was a $33 million fund, my last fund was a $175 million fund. Um, I had offices in Paul Allen's um, building in Seattle. For a couple of years, I was the largest venture investor in the state of Washington. Um, and that was all the good things, invested in a lot of very cool companies. Um, Probably one of the more notable investments at the time was a company called TGIC, which I'm sure you've never heard of, but they are the company that basically invented the software that goes on every single cell phone that enables you when you text to finish the word. Now back then, that's very commonplace, but back then um, texting wasn't even popular or even it wasn't really uh, uh, widely used here in the US. And I remember when I went about and kind of bounced the idea of this off people, they would go, well, who's ever going to text anyway? And why would you really need the efficiency of having the keyboard finish the word for you? Well, <laughs> we all know how that ended. It's very commonplace. 
Long story short, that was one of my better investments, invested in that company, and it was sold like a year and a half later for, I don't know, a half a billion dollars. So good return on that investment. So that's all the good portion. Then my, my hypothesis about uh, the, the state of Washington being under venture capital, um, other people recognize that. And by year 2000, I think there were 43 venture capital funds. The market was uh, very heated. Um, uh, what do we call it? Uh, exuberant, what's the word? Uh, irrational exuberance. And so shortly after 2000, we had a number of events. We had the tech crash, the bubble burst. We had 9-11. And so the next three or four years of my venture history wasn't quite so pleasant because <laughs> asset values plummeted. Um, the ability to take a company public basically evaporated because of Sarbanes-Oxley. And uh, unfortunately, almost every venture fund that was formed kind of in the late 90s, 2000 timeframe did not do well. And that last fund of mine did not do well. And, you know, I, I took that, you know, very seriously as people had invested with me. Uh, I was unable to return all their money. Um, and that was, that was I, as I look back upon uh, my career, you know, that was something that, you know, um, I don't want to say it was a failure, but it certainly wasn't uh, um, a, uh, a robust success. I mean, it was, it, it was, it didn't work out well. Um, but I learned a lot from that. And unfortunately, I kind of came through that reasonably unscathed. And it's really because of two lessons learned. One is setting proper expectations. Whenever I raise money for one of my venture funds or a company or angel funds or um, a company that I uh, am closely involved with, I set really modest expectations. I tell people that do not invest if you ever need to see this money again. Uh, realize it's high risk. Um, realize that you might be doing this for a number of reasons, rate of return, economic development, just for the sport of it. Um, so I set, I've set reasonable expectations. And then also I communicate regularly, frequently, over communicate and I don't just communicate the good uh, but I communicate the bad and the ugly too so when uh, when all those unfortunate events happened in the early 2000s and then the uh, the uh, um, the eventual residual effect of that um, I had really very few investors who called up and got angry or mad uh, in fact I had a number of people who said hey Tom don't worry about me I understand how are you doing? This must be difficult to have, to have kind of gone through this time frame where you invest in companies and they don't do well and asset values get marked down. So uh, I found that to be quite comforting. That was a long time. Mm -hmm. I forgot what your question was, but. No, I like it. That's what this is about. So can you explain the difference between a venture capitalist and a angel investor? Yeah, the venture, venture capitalists are, are traditionally uh, formal funds, pools of capital. And, you know, years ago, they might have been small funds, you know, back in the 80s or, when they, or 70s and 80s, they might have been five, 10, 30 million dollar funds. Now they're ginormous. There are hundreds of millions of dollars. Their average investment size is maybe, you know, maybe as low as a couple million, but oftentimes much bigger than that. Um, whereas 
And that was kind of a more common way of raising capital. But now angels, common ways of raising capital for early, very early stage companies. Now angel investors or angel funds, because they're able to make smaller investment sizes, have really uh, um, been a more primary source of capital for companies at an early stage. And angel, hmm. angel investors are typically individuals that have some discretionable capital. Um, perhaps they're entrepreneurs themselves, perhaps they had founded a company before, <laughs> or they might be pools of individuals like that that have pooled their capital together in smaller funds for purposes of making investments at a very early stage. You know, typically, you know, an average angel uh, investment might be a quarter of a million up to a million. So it's really in a size range that is too small for formal venture funds. In terms of Spokane, was it, was it, I think a lot of people look at Spokane from outside of Spokane and think that there's, there isn't much in terms of future development opportunity. Um, do you want to talk about details, how that came about? And then obviously that brings us to where we are now, but what's details? What was the idea? How did that happen? Well, uh, the, the, initially the name of the company was called Green Cupboards. <laughs> and the story behind the company is I sometimes teach in the entrepreneurial department at Gonzaga. And really this is, and this was, uh, I guess the very first time I taught was 2007. And uh, as part of the class, uh, one of the lectures in the class was to inform the students about the importance of an elevator pitch. Now, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you always need to have an elevator pitch. So I told the class, I said, hey, next week, I want you to come back and deliver an elevator pitch to the class for a company that you made up. I don't really care what the company is uh, or even what the merits are. I just want you to, to get the, uh, the benefit of giving an elevator pitch for something. But I said, in all fairness, I made up a company last weekend, and I'm going to give you an elevator pitch for that by way of example. And, in all, and, and the truth is, that weekend, I was out at my lake cabin and had a whole bunch of people over for dinner. And after dinner, everyone was being very conscious about, you know, where do I put the cans and the bottles? Where do I put the organics? And unfortunately, my lake cabin, I wasn't really set up for that. But I was really struck with how everybody was trying to be green or environmentally friendly in their lifestyle. Um, and the next day I woke up and I was still thinking about this and it was kind of a miserable day at my lake cabin, it was rainy. So I really had nothing to do. So I started thinking about how could this be a business that there was really no place that you could buy truly vetted green products online. Kind of the intersection of consumer reports and amazon.com for green products. So I kind of geeked out and I went on GoDaddy, which is highly addicting, to try to find a name for this company. You know, Green Store, Green Warehouse, those names were all taken. But I did find Green Cupboards, which is a place where you might put green products. Um, unfortunately, I had confusion later on, thinking that was a place where you could go actually and buy green cupboards, but it was meant to be a place where you would store green products. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> Then, then it kind of dawned on me, I had this lecture coming up where I had to give an elevator pitch. So I thought I would kind of combine my idea for green cupboards into an elevator pitch. The story goes faster after this. So I delivered this elevator pitch to my class, green cupboards. Um, 
And after class, this kid came up to me and said, hey, Tom, I kind of like that idea. Uh, do you mind if I write a business plan for you? And I said, sure, have at it. I'm not going to do anything with it. And two weeks later, he came back with a nicely written 20, 30 page business plan. And I appreciated his oh. effort. So I reciprocated. I spent a good two or three hours. And I remember specifically sitting around my kitchen table and going through it and taking notes and making revisions and all that and handed it back to him. And um, I didn't really know what he was going to do with it. And he said, hey, thanks, Tom. Um, why don't we enter this this business plan into the upcoming uh, business plan competition at uh, between the community colleges and the other schools here in Spokane. I said, sure, have at it. He did, and he got first place. Uh, and this is now kind of the fall of 2000 and, no, the spring of 2008. And uh, so he won this thing, and I'm, I'm there at the reception, kind of patting him on the back. And I said, hey, Josh, that was really good, super exciting. You're graduating now. This has been a fun project patted him on the back, said, have a great life. Uh, let's stay in touch. Thinking I'd probably never see the kid again. And he said, no, 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 Tom. How about we actually start this company? I said, well, okay. And he goes, well, in, in a couple of weeks after graduation, um, maybe I could come down and use your office. And, and I said, okay, yeah, that's fine. And so like two or three weeks later, um, I come in on a Monday morning and he's sitting in the lobby with a couple of other uh, kind of uh, motley looking people from school with backpacks and computers and water bottles. And they all moved in my conference room. And uh, oh, always two weeks later, then about two weeks later after that, he, uh, um, and this is Josh Nublet, And th then he, he brought his then girlfriend, now wife, Sarah into it. So he's in my conference room for two weeks and I'm coming in every day and there's pizza boxes and beer cans and Coke bottles. And I really have no idea what they're doing in there, but presumably doing something. And then finally Josh came to me, and uh, typically, Josh, uh, if you know him, is a very direct individual. But this time he came to me and said, hey, Tom, um, um, I need to ask you something. And he wouldn't look in my eye. And he kind of kept him and hind. And finally said, hey, Josh, what is it? And he goes, well, I think we need some money to really get this thing going. And I said, okay, well, how much do you need? And maybe I can help you. I'll put some money in. And so anyway, that's where the story gets a little bit faster. So that was the founding of Green Cupboards. We raised about $288,000 from me and the members of the Spokane Angel Alliance. Uh, and we were off and running. We went to Clune Hosmer. They did the first uh, um, version of our website. We launched the website in 2008 and we're off to the races. I think our, our, our best selling product for the first couple of months was toilet bowl cleaner, uh, largely bought by friends and family. Um, and I say that somewhat uh, tongue and tongue and cheekly because we quickly learned about two years later that selling green products online uh, has low margins and requires a lot of capital. So we subsequently pivoted uh, to where we would sell a broad variety of products on the backs of other platforms like uh, Amazon and Walmart where we could use their customer base. So a couple of years into it, we, um, we pivoted to e-tails, changed the name, and became more of a marketplace seller. And then ultimately grew the company to about 120 million in revenues and sold it. So I've got the multi-screen here, and I typed in greencupboards.com and it went straight to e-tails. That's clever. Yeah, I did, okay. <laughs> Redirect. But, but one, one thing I wanted, one, one thing that is really kind of important to add in all this, um, when I, when I told Josh that I would, I would back him in this, 
uh, although it was kind of too late for me to say no anyway, but um, I gave him, a, I gave him a, couple of, um, a couple of key things I wanted him to follow. And it's key learnings that I observed during my days as a venture capitalist. And in many ways, I, I have a lot of issues with the venture capital model um, and, I, and, and a lot of learnings from it that I now preach to all entrepreneurs. So I told Josh three things. I said, Josh, um, first of all, every budget you give me, I want you to look me in the eye and say, you're going to at, la at least meet it and hopefully beat it. I am not gonna tolerate missing budget. So if you're gonna give something to me, you better beat it. Um, uh, I'm not gonna accept any excuses. And if, if you have to stand back, that's fine. I don't really care. Cause I know you want this to be a big company and you're gonna work hard to make it big, but just give me annual projections that you can meet and hopefully beat. Then I said, Josh, we're gonna be profitable as soon as we can. Uh, we're going to have a clear business model. I'm not going to accept, hey, let's just get eyeballs and customers and figure out how to monetize it later. I said, you know, that works. That works if you got a billion dollars in backing. Um, but it doesn't work for most companies. And he's nodding his head. And then I said, third, Josh, we're going to raise as little money as possible. I see so much money wasted in the venture capital community and people aren't thinking how to be efficient and and so I said, Josh, with those three conditions, I'll, I'll, I'll invest in you and help you raise some additional capital. And uh, if I would have told, if I, if I tell those three things to kind of a conventional uh, serial entrepreneur from the Bay Area, he will say, Tom, that's a simultaneous equation that just, it just, that dog doesn't hunt. You can't do it. Fortunately, Josh didn't know any better. And he sweated on that. He agonized on it. And I like to see entrepreneurs that I back agonize and worry about returning capital. Um, and quite honestly, he did a great job of it. We were profitable every year, but our first year of operations, he beat every budget he gave me. And every year he would kind of give me this crazy revenue forecast. And I go, Josh, are you sure about that? You know, that's kind of aggressive. Yeah. And I would make him sign it. And I still have a stack of all these budgets that he signed. Um, and we raised very little capital. We got to $27 million in revenues off that initial $288,000 investment. Then we raised another $1.25 million. And so, but that total took us to $120 million in revenues at the time that we sold the company. When did you sell? A million and a half in VT. When did we sell? Yeah. Uh, 2000, uh, October 2016. Yeah. Did, did, did you stay on in any capacity once you sold? Was there I was a consultant. Well, this is kind of interesting. Um, I was a consultant for two years. Um, but, you know, other than being but, – but the relationship between the owners were really with Josh and the team. I think they kind of viewed me as, you know, someone they had to deal with. Um, and that became more of a factor because like a lot of situations after you hand over your baby, you don't really like all the decisions that are being made. And I became somewhat of a vocal, uh, constructive observer <laughs> of things that ought to be done differently, uh, which furthered the owner's realization that yeah, exactly. What you just do with your They wanted Tom out. Ironically, ironically, <laughs> uh, all the things that I were was was preaching 
just materialized and now I'm back on the board of the, I, they, I just became a board member of the company that is now the owner of Trends. Oh. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Full, coming full circle there. Yeah. Well, I think that obviously speaks to your vision and, and what you're able to offer in terms of advice and, and just insight, you know, a lot of experience in investment, a lot of experience in just the business world in general. So that brings you to, to now. So you're, you're in two organizations now. You've got the Spokane Angel Alliance and you've got Ignite Northwest. Do you want to talk about both of them and what the differences are? Because I think, especially here in Spokane, a lot of people think that they're just the same, you know? Like you know, um, you know, Ignite Northwest is an economic development organization with um, hmm. you know, limited funding, you know, three employees. Um, so in order to really fully deliver our mission on funding, enlightening, and mentoring uh, uh, explosively growing companies, you need to collaborate with other organizations and, and have, a, have a network that is bigger than what you have in house. So the Spokane Angel Alliance is something else that I had started over the years. So really I, I view Ignite having this mission, but then collaborating with other organizations to deliver our funding, enlightening, and mentorship. So we, we collaborate with you know, all the other economic development or organizations, and, and really anybody that touches entrepreneurship, we wanna work with to bring their resources. Um, I view, again, I keep coming back to our funding, enlightening, and mentoring, explosively growing companies. It's really kind of a very narrow lane. That's, I mean, it's, and it's explosively growing companies, not lifestyle businesses, because entrepreneurs come in a couple of different forms. There's yep. those that want to take over the world like Bernard Danes, and there are others that want to have, uh, you know, a couple of uh, boutiques in downtown Spokane. Both entrepreneurs are equal in their ambition and all of that. They just have a little bit of a different focus. But we're just catering on the explosively growing ones. Um, and Can you explain again, explosively growing, what that term means to you? Explosively growing? That, that means Yeah, that, what is explosive? You know, I mean, that's a subjective term. Yeah. It, it is subjective. I mean, if I were to say, by Spokane standards, I would say an explosively growing company might be a company that aspires to have you know, 50 to $100 million in revenues in five to seven years. If someone in Spokane did that, that would be a big business. Now, if I was in the yeah. Bay Area and I walked into one of the fancy venture funds and said, hey, I'm Tom Simpson, I'm going to be $50 million in seven years, they'd go, that's a little boring. We only invest in Ubers and Facebooks and Googles. So it, it, <laughs> is, uh, it is a subjective term that will have a different meeting in Spokane than it might in the Bay Area. Okay. I didn't know if it was, you know, a, a multiplier or if it was a revenue target or what it was. So, so 50 to hundred million in the next five years is what you are calling explosive. And frankly, you know, again, and, and, and more appropriately, that's a reasonable expectation. I mean, I think so many people believe they're kind of brainwashed by VCs in the Bay area that their goals ought to be hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in three years. You know what? That just doesn't happen very often. But if you really can, again, particularly for our region, have a reasonable opportunity to build a hundred million dollar business in maybe five to seven years, yeah. that's impactful. Mm -hmm. You don't see a lot mm -hmm. of it in Spokane. 
Yeah. Mm-mm. That's a big company, Spokane. Yep. And we've we've seen some uh, success stories. So Spaceology is one of your success stories, correct? Uh, yeah. Oh, you're wearing a T-shirt. He's got his shirt on. There you go. <laughs> He's wearing the T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Are there any others? That is He's literally wearing the T-shirt. Open? Yeah. Um. Well, there's a, there's a whole, I mean, the, the Spokane is, I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen my, uh, well, we, we put together at Ignite this kind of the, the Ignite 25 plus five, which are the more, uh, the, the larger, more compelling companies in the region. So, I mean, we have, you know, Rohini, Spiceology, Safeguard, Apana, Risklands, uh, the list goes on and on and on. And that's, I think one thing you were going to ask me about, uh, or you are asking me, is economic development in Spokane. And as I said earlier, I'm a, I, I'm a big believer that we have a ginormous opportunity for us in Spokane. Um, the, the, the founder of AOL, uh, whose name is escaping me right now, um, Steve, Steve, Steve. Anyway, he recently wrote a book called The Third Wave, mm-hmm. uh, The Third Wave of the Internet. And in the book, uh, he talks about he believes in the rise of the rest. And by that, he means that secondary and tertiary cities like Spokane have this opportunity to break out and, uh, uh, again, absorb the overflow from places like Seattle and the Bay Area. Uh, And I think Spokane really, really has that opportunity. But unfortunately, um, a lot of people in Spokane don't have awareness for all these companies like on the Ignite 25 plus five. And when, and they, and they kind of think startups, that takes a lot of capital. It's risky. It might fail. So instead, it's my view that in Spokane, we spend too much time looking at our legacy industries, uh, banking, mining, agriculture, which are fantastic um, and important. But if we really want to grow, we need to be thinking about the emerging businesses and focused on that. But there's not enough awareness. Now, about a year ago right now, there were three companies in Spokane that all raised over uh, $10 million in new funding. That's pretty big news for Spokane. It would be huge and even big news for Spokane. So I'd go around Spokane and I'd go to leaders in the community and I don't want to name names here, but people we would all recognize. And I would say, Hey, God, three companies in here, Spokane just raised $10 million. Uh, can you name any of them? And leaders in our community would go, I can't. So one thing I'm trying to do with Ignite in this 25 plus five is, 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 is build recognition that we have a whole bunch of really successful companies here in Spokane that are attracting attention from outside investors. Because my view is before I can really beat the drum about our community being a great place for such entrepreneurs, there's got to be wide recognition within the community that that exists. So yeah, that's no, one of the things absolutely. that I'm trying to do is just some self-education so, here in the community. So with this, uh, you know, expanded knowledge of companies that are happening in Spokane. I know a lot of people want to be, a lot of those founders end up wanting to be venture capitalists later on, right? My old joke early on about wanting to have their exit of their own, and then they want to kind of sit on the beach and drink margaritas and think about their next venture and how they're going to invest in all these other guys' dreams, right? How does a average Joe, we'll say a qualified, obviously, within the the terms of, of being able to actually invest, invest 
in a venture capital company? Is it through a venture capital fund? They can go out and maybe do it themselves in an early seed round or, or how do people invest in, in, in startups? Um, I guess well, that, you, you, you would then by definition be an angel investor. You've made some money and you've allocated a small percentage of your portfolio to these very uh, highly risky speculative uh, 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 investments. My advice is if you're going to do it, first of all, um, you, t you need to take whatever aggregate amount that you have and divide it by 10 because you need to make 10 investments because these aren't all home runs um, and you need to have a diversified portfolio to ensure that you get the one or two that really uh, are a breakout success. So take your number, divide it by 10, and then you need to have the discipline to actually make those 10 investments, which, which, which what often happens is people will make one, two, and three, and unfortunately the first three are losers, their spouse says, what in the hell are you doing with our money? And they stop doing it. So that's the formula mm -hmm. for success. Now, mm -hmm. how do you get involved in that? Every community of size, like Spokane, Seattle, Bellingham, Boise, Portland, even in Montana, um, all has an angel network. So you join one of these angel organizations. Um, and like the Spokane Angel Alliance, we get together six times a year. Each meeting, I bring in two or three companies. They make a presentation, and then you can, you know, kind of decide on your own uh, if you would like to invest um, or not. And then, usually, every town, like Spokane, also has some formal angel funds, such that if you don't really want to have to go through and do all the due diligence, do all the vetting, worry that you may not have the discipline to uh, make ten investments, you could instead invest in an angel fund that does all that for you. Okay, so just as a clarity, you're saying, well, just hypothetical numbers, you have a million dollars, that million dollars should be split up amongst 10 companies. Yes. And again, that million dollars should be a small portion yes. of your portfolio. So a million is probably a funny number for a lot of people that are listening. Good math. So it might be you have a $10 million portfolio yep. total and a million of it's being earmarked to startups. Yep. Divide that million by 10. Yep. It's money that it's money that if you never saw again, you're probably not going to change your lifestyle. Your kids are still going to go to college. You're still going to retire and uh, you'll have, you know, uh, money set aside for healthcare expenses or any other disasters that might come up. Yeah. So I'm going to be, so this sounds like a rich man's game a little bit, right? I'm using air quotes here, rich man's yep. game, the venture capital game. How does somebody get into it? That's not, wealthy okay that's a good question because you didn't start out wealthy right well the, you know there are there, the problem is there's some sec regulations around um um you need to be an accredited investor yeah, Paul, yeah. to invest in these companies and the accreditation standards are um uh still big numbers but far less than 10 million dollars so people <laughs> yeah. that are still otherwise successful um um can uh, invest in these sort of situations. And, you know, sometimes the, the, the minimum investment in an angel deal might be 25,000. So if you had, if you only had $250,000 set aside, you could still make 10 mm -hmm. investments. Now there's also been some relaxation in some of the, um, SEC rules that allow non-accredited investors to nonetheless invest in these opportunities. A great local example is hypersciences. They last year raised over $10 million 
and I think it was a Reg A offering, and they brought in um, you know two or three thousand investors, and I think the average investment amount was like ten thousand uh, dollars or less. I'll, wow. I'll have my math wow. kind of wrong, but it did enable yeah. people that didn't have the wealth that you described, ten million dollars, to nonetheless maybe put you know five or ten thousand dollars at something. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Is it accredited still 300 for income and a million for net worth? I believe so. Yeah, I think so. For if you're a married couple. but Ben's working on being a VC. What's that? <laughs> Dude, I'd love I, – hey, a small portion of my portfolio, right? So, yeah, still a small portion. Yep. Well, you know, one of my buddies is Nathan Steele, who's on your yeah. 25 plus five. He's on the yep. plus five one, I think, with Renew. Yep. And I keep telling him, I was like, I, I want to give you some money. Let me know. It's like, I realize you could just totally blow it and lose it all. But we'll see what he says, if he'll take it or not. Yep. Yep. Well, I was looking through your board. I see Tyler Lafferty joined. He's one of our previous guests as well. I know Ben. Yeah. Oh, Tyler. Oh, Tyler, is, I mean, Tyler, is, Tyler is a community asset. First of all, he's just a wonderful individual. Um, highly successful entrepreneur and one that uh, uh, gives his time back to the community in terms of mentorship. Um, mm -hmm. One of my favorite people. Yeah, I really enjoy it. When him. he doesn't need to either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so here's, here's a question for you. And I always tell people, um, and Ben and I are experiencing this just now, there's two ways to make money in a crisis, right? You've got the vultures, the people that exploit people, and you've got the people that truly set out to help. But there's always opportunity and we're going through something just now that most of us have never seen and will never see again. Yep. Um, what do you see in terms of opportunity coming out on the other side of this coronavirus um, outbreak? And, and where, where would you be looking? What, what sort of sectors would you be looking in right now? To yep. Well, first of all, I would never want to try to take advantage of a crisis. Yeah, I um, mean, we're, we're in a crisis right now. You know, people's lives are being devastated, uh, both by fatalities and by financial. Very, very mm -hmm. unfortunate. Um, what and um, but there will be meaningful paradise paradigm shifts in consumer and business behavior as the as a result of this. Um, so I, I'm mindful of that, of any new investment I make. How will this company fare in a post-COVID-19 environment? Um, now, one really interesting example, I just invested in a company called Crave Delivery that is based in Boise, Idaho. And what Crave is doing is they're building central commissaries for up to 16 restaurants higher-end restaurants that have otherwise been um, constrained in their ability to, to, to enable their customers to order online and to fulfill those orders in a way that reflects the quality of their restaurant. So this company um, will be opening up uh, in Denver later, uh, in Boise, outside this year. There'll be 16 restaurants there. And so all the restaurants there can uh, uh, share their resources, leverage common resources, use a common ordering app, use a dedicated in-house high quality delivery fleet, 
Um, and then for consumers, let's say, for example, you know, my family, let's say one night I want to have a pizza, my wife wants to have pasta, my son Connor wants a burger, rather than ordering from three different restaurants, we can go to this one uh, uh, central location, all get what we want, um, and have it delivered to us in a in a in a more elegant, safe way than you otherwise might get when you're ordering a pizza. So, so it's like a food court, but online, you know, that comes to your house. You yeah, pick your food yeah. from your food court. Yeah, but, but it's all higher end so when, restaurants too that otherwise have kind of yeah. trained and been able to operate their restaurant and uh, uh, offer uh, online ordering and delivery in a high quality way that reflects the brand of their hmm. restaurant. That's really cool. So when you're looking at uh, companies like this and, and you're doing your due diligence on the back end for investing in a potential company like Crave, what are you looking for? I mean, do you have a checklist of things that you want when you're looking for I thought you were just going to pull out a sheet of paper there. Now you're just looking out of the pond or daydreaming. Yeah, no, right? uh, you know, but like, what are you looking for? Is it the person? Is it the idea? Is it the finances? It's probably a little bit of all of them, but yes, yes, what yes, specifically yes, yes. is there? Well, one thing I've learned over the years, investing is way more of an art than it is a science. Um, mm. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I mean, at a very early stage of a company's business, there's not a lot of due diligence you can do. You're, you're, you're taking giant leaps in faith that are these the right people? Does the business model work? Is there a market for it? Can they execute and manage effectively? Can they raise sufficient capital? Will they build the right culture? Um, so it's way more of, a, of an art than a science. When I started venture capital investing, I did. I had my checklist and I went through it and I scored everything. And over the years, I began to develop a sixth sense and say, yeah, I had this beautiful checklist I went through, but it didn't, it wasn't a very good predictor of what was successful or not. And it really hit home to me back in the last financial crisis. Uh, one morning I was watching CNBC and Howard uh, and Warren Buffett was being interviewed and Warren had just invested $5 billion in bank of America. Five billion dollars. That's a lot of money. Warren, they go, hey Warren, you just put five billion dollars in a in a in a bank in the midst of this financial. What what was your dude? What were you thinking? What was your checklist? And Warren said, God, you know, I was taking a bath the other night, and it dawned on me, Bank of America is a pretty good bank. I like the CEO. <laughs> We're going to get out of this. I ought to put some money in. Due diligence. <laughs> that was his art. Yeah, but he's a smart yeah. man. Of course, he, he, you know, he, he, looked, he, he looked, but his investment thesis was based on his gut, not a list. Once he had his gut, yeah. then he went back and checked off the, the, the things on his list. But um, you lead with your gut and then verify, verify with the checklist. Well, everybody thought he was crazy when he put a lot of money into the airlines. He's made a lot of money on airlines. Yeah. Maybe not so much just now, but they'll bounce back again. Yep. Yep. Or even trains. Yeah. He was yep. like, trains? Yeah. Really? That's what you want to do is trains? Yeah. But it worked for him. It did. It worked for him. When you're, when you're, so uh, I want to know. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Stephen. I was just going to say when your stock's worth over 200,000 a share, you're doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Class A. Class A. <laughs> Berkshire Class A. Yeah. Right. Uh, 
craziest pitch, craziest idea, craziest meeting you've been involved in? Oh, well, there's a lot of those. Um, um, and maybe it worked. Maybe, maybe, maybe they signed on. There's a lot of crazy ideas out there. For some reason, I'm struck by once I got a call from someone that had an automated system to scrub, I don't even know what you call it, the fur off the outside of a clamshell or huh? muck on it. And, and they were uh. super passionate about how they explained it. And, you know, one, one thing about doing what I do, you just can't hang up on people. You can't say, hey, that's a stupid idea. Because if you did that, after about three months, no one's going to come back to you. So you always yeah. have to. You always have to say, "Oh, it's you have to. You have to give kind of. You have to do two things. First of all, you have to give. Some not, that's not my niche. Yeah, yeah you yeah. have to give some. You have to give something yeah. constructive, like, uh, "Hey, got a really good. Have you thought about this? Or can I introduce you to this person? Or something?" So they leave the meeting and they go, "God, I got something of value of it." But when you turn them down, you try to use something non-threatening, like, "Oh, you're just too early." I know nothing about the clam industry um, or, or, or something that, so they walk away and they go, oh, I didn't fit because um, I'm too early. But I walked away with some value added. Did you ever look to see where that person ended up? Are they like the clam king now and they're like know. one billion? I don't know. But, <laughs> but, 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 but the question you're getting at, there are a number of deals that I looked at, did not invest in, and they became multi-billion dollar industries. All of this at VCs have these list of things that we didn't do but wish we had. Yeah. It's like guys. Which, what's the name off of that list? Well, one of my personal ones is is uh, Starbucks. Uh, I, I my mentor in Seattle that was have been a good one. Was a very good personal friend of Howard Schultz when he was uh, starting Starbucks, and back then it, it was even before Starbucks. It was called Il Giornale, and I had a chance to put like mm. three thousand dollars in that back in. 1988 or something and uh oh, that was a lot of money to me and i went to my dad and said hey dad there's this there's this coffee company in seattle that makes uh these drinks and my dad goes who's ever gonna spend a dollar for a latte and i didn't invest unfortunately vaynerchuk gary v talks about the fact he didn't Ooh. invest in uber that's his yeah. thing he's like yeah i passed on it i didn't see where it was going yeah <laughs> i look at it um, so, uh, win some, you lose some. Yeah. Obviously, you mentioned Google, Amazon, Facebook. What do you think, if you had to guess, which sector is the next one of those coming from? You know, uh, you know, I think, you know, again, back to the, the paradigm shifts as a result of this pandemic, anything that allows working or schooling or healthcare remotely. Um, anything that accommodates that, uh, you know, I look at, you know, I look at, um, I'm, I love to invest in individual stocks. Um, so I look at companies that, you know, um, Zoom, Teladoc, Slack, all of these things that are enabling um, doing things remotely. Did you see uh, on, on the ticker, there's a company that has Z-O-O-M, and it was a penny. Yeah. It was trading at like 50 cents. Yes. They tried to buy Zoom stock, and they yep. never clicked or verified, and it jumped up to like $8 a share at its highest. 
yeah. people got real rich real quick. <laughs> I, I was almost uh, thinking that. I remember I was once looking at Zoom. I did all that. I typed typed in Z O O M, and something just didn't smell right. So I went and looked at the name, and uh, I'd made that mistake before. I, I was intending to buy Shopify once, and I bought Spotify. And it wasn't until six months Ooh. later I realized they made a mistake. That was a good investment, though. <laughs> I, I think I think during that time frame, Shopify actually outperformed Spotify, but yeah, it still worked out. But um, <laughs> but it worked good. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Good. Well, I only have one more question for you, and then uh, Stephen has one that he wants to wrap it up with, and maybe okay. we'll about an hour here. So, best piece of business advice you've ever received that you'd like to share. The best piece of business advice I'd ever received. You know, I, I, I'm a big believer in quotes, so I have a lot of favorite quotes. Um, I like it. Uh, you know, Andy Grove said, only the paranoid survive. Um, you know, Vince Lombardi, I think, I think it was Vince Lombardi who once said, you should be able to give the other team your playbook and still win. Yeah, I like that mm-hmm. one. I'm a practice um, one. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my own favorite ones is don't get Netflixed. Uh, I mean, Blockbuster should have been Netflix, but they they mm. they got to sleep at the switch. Yeah. Um, culture Trump strategy. Mm-hmm. Do you know Simon Sinek talks about this in one, and I think it's the the infinite, infinite game. I don't know if you are you a big Simon Sinek fan. I know. We get two books. Start with why and the infinite game. And in the infinite game, he actually tells the full story of what happened with Netflix and Blockbuster. And there was a kid at Blockbuster that went into that um, went into that boardroom and presented the Netflix model to them and said, "We need to shift to this. Yep. No, these people can just watch when they want." And do you know why they said no? Why? A third of their revenue came from late fees. Huh? Everybody, all their investors yeah. were like, "Oh hell no, we're yeah. not moving to that model. We make too much money off of late fees." Fast forward yeah. five years. I mean, you can't find a blockbuster now. Ben proved me wrong on this. There's one, but it's not a corporate owned. It just, just has the name. <laughs> uh, that, that reminds me of another one of my favorite quotes, which is probably my, the best one, best piece of advice. And I think it was made by a retired general. And that is, if you don't like change, you'll like irrelevancy even less. Yep. <laughs> well, that's like the... Very the, true. This is a quote, but people always say, you know, they talk about Darwinism being the, the strongest surviving, and it's not, it's not the strongest. It's the ones that are willing to adapt, the people that yep. are the, the species that adapts. Because the dinosaurs were strong, and they're not walking yep. around anymore. Yep. <laughs> Do want to ask you one more thing. When okay. you're able to get out and about again, will you let Ben and I buy you a beer and some dinner? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, beer. <laughs> I, I'm craving, I love beer. <laughs> I'm craving actual human interaction. I get a little bit here and there. But, I mean, I'm in Indabath two times a day at least. I'm doing lunch meetings down there. Yeah. That's the part I miss the most through all of this. Just the, the, no, absolutely. I, I, I look forward to that. Cool. Well, thanks so much. Um, do you get anything you want to ask Ben and I? We always ask people if they've got anything they want to throw at us. Throw at you guys? Um, let's save that for that beer. Okay. I like it. I really, well, I will conclude. I really appreciate um, you doing these podcasts, what you're doing in the community, because um, it, it does take, uh, takes all of us rowing in the same direction if we're going to be successful in making this a entrepreneurial hub. So. 
Appreciate all your yeah, efforts. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thanks Thank again. You. And Bye. all you guys that are still listening, that was Tom Simpson. Uh, ben and I will be back next week. And until the next time, be good to yourselves and to each other. Boom. I've been grinding so long, been trying this shit for years. And I got nothing to show, just climbing this rope right here. And if there's a man upstairs, he kept bringing me rain. But I've been sending up prayers and something's changed. I think I finally found my hallelujah. I've been waiting for this moment all my life. Now all my dreams are coming true. Now